In your name we overcome, for you shall see us safely home. As your church, we lift our voice and say, Father, not our will, but yours be done. I hope that was, that was words lifted from your heart. Lord, here's all of those things. So what a joy it is to just affirm the truth of the word, that it is his will we want done, him magnified, not ourselves. Good to be with you today. I'm Kurt Parker. We're going to be in part of the worship that includes the reading and the studying of God's word and its application. So turn, if you would, in your copy of God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're in a continuing study. If you've not been with us verse by verse through these first and second letters to Timothy and Titus, we've just titled this Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. In particular, as we've got to chapter 4, um, it's guidelines for public worship and success from God's perspective. So look, let's read verse 13, and we'll go from there through verse 16, the end of the chapter. Paul writes to Timothy, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Verse 14, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Stop right there. Taking pains with and being absorbed in crucial things and so ensuring success was really illustrated very well on February 15, 1921 in New York City. The operating room of Kane Summit Hospital, a doctor is performing an appendectomy. And in many ways, the events leading to the surgery are uneventful. The patient has complained of severe abdominal pain. The diagnosis is clear and inflamed appendix. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane is performing the surgery. In his distinguished 37-year medical career, he's performed nearly 4,000 appendectomies. And so this surgery will be uneventful in all ways except for two. First one, the use of a local anesthesia in a major surgery. Dr. Kane is a crusader against the hazards of general anesthesia. He contends local is much better, far safer. Many of his colleagues agree with him in principle, but in order for them to agree with him in practice, they're going to have to see the theory applied. And so Dr. Kane searches for a volunteer, a patient who is willing to undergo surgery while under local anesthesia. And a volunteer, as you may well imagine, is not easily found. Many are squeamish at the thought of being awake during their own surgery. Others are fearful that the anesthesia may wear off too soon. Eventually, however, Dr. Kane finds a candidate. On Tuesday morning, February 15th, the historic operation occurs. The patient is prepped, wheeled into the operation room. The local anesthetic is applied. And as he's done thousands of times, Dr. Kane performs the operation skillfully during the procedure. The patient complains only of some minor discomfort. The volunteer is taken into post-op and placed in the hospital ward. He recovers quickly. He's dismissed two days later. Dr. Kane has proven his theory. Thanks to the willingness of a brave volunteer, Kane demonstrated that local anesthesia was a viable and even preferable option. The second novelty of the operation, of course, in order to prove his point, Dr. Kane operated on himself. The doctor became a patient in order to convince the others that he was worthy of following. He gave himself to his work and persevered. This actual event, in many ways, is analogous to Paul's instruction to Timothy. It's going to take a lot of work. As this new pastor is there, he's not, he's not um, 
immature. He's mature, but he's new, and it's going to take a lot of work and discipline and personal example to convince people that he's capable of leading. And putting the work in and keeping the character free of reproach, Dr. Kane demonstrated the work ethic and the long history of faithfulness, along with a personal commitment to convince those who were convincible to follow him. And in many respects, uh, that's what Paul is calling Timothy to do. And last time we were together, we really got into uh, that issue as we talk about the main things that a pastor is supposed to be giving themselves to. And in chapter 4, we've looked at success from God's perspective from a ministry grounded in the Word. Look at verse 13, if you would. Paul says in verse 13, he says, Until I come, I give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And we saw, as we looked at it last time, that this simple sentence is really a significant text in defining uh, the major work of the pastor and the worship of the church. And that was principle number three, if you're a note taker right there on the back of your bulletin. From God's perspective, success there is the faithful ministers to have a thoroughly biblical ministry. Now, a lot of people will say they do, and a lot of preachers will say they preach biblically, but it's not subjective. And so we're going to see, uh, really define what that's supposed to look like. And we spend a lot of time breaking this sentence down because Paul spends a huge amount of time talking about the Word and its major part in the ministry of the church. So we won't repeat all of that this morning. If you missed it, you can catch up on it on Spotify, but we'll just do a little review. Paul starts and says this way, he says, until I come. And that's a phrase we've seen already before in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. But it indicates to Timothy Paul's intent to return to Ephesus and meet him there in the near future. We know that he did not make it back. We know that he was actually killed. But um, and he says, until you receive any further orders, this is what I want you to do. I want you to give your attention to some very important things. And that word give attention to is a continuing command. It's just one word we saw last time. But we've seen these continuing commands all the way through uh, this letter to Timothy. And that's not surprising for us because it's the Lord's prerogative to order the church. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that that's the reason he writes the letter so we may know what ought to be done inside the church of God. And so it really indicates to Timothy, this is to become your way of life. It isn't just... Until I come, read, exhort. He could have said that. He could have said, until I come, read, exhort, teach. But he says, until I come, and then he says, give attention to, uh, in the imperative. It isn't just until I come, read, exhort, teach. It's until I come, give your whole attention to the reading and the exhortation and the teaching. And really, it embodies all that's behind it then. It assumes all the commitment and all the necessary preparation. Now, what is the one who serves as the overseer to be continually giving him his attention to? Because that's the question, isn't it? What are we to give our attention to if we oversee the church or if we're in a teaching position in the church? First of all, the public reading of Scripture. And what we saw in the original, it only says the reading. And if we see that with, with the definite article, we know it indicates something that's well known. And we saw, after looking at a number of passages and examples from the Old and New Testament, we won't go through that again, but the reading would include making sense of the passage, breaking it down so that people come to understand it clearly. And we saw that initially in the passage in Nehemiah, one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures that talk about uh, Ezra's reading of, of the scriptures, the, the law to the people. And it's just such a rich passage, but it gives us a lot of context to understand what it means to do the reading. And so the reference then in context, as we saw uh, during every service in the early church, there was a time for the reading, and we know that the reading was a reading of Scripture with an exposition. So when it's used here in Timothy, and for all who teach the church then, 
uh, with the verb give your attention to, we saw that this important part, arguably the most important part of the service, is to give your attention to the reading. And that will mean you are going to be very careful in the text that you select and in the correctness of your exposition and cautious regarding your preparation. And that's what it means to give your whole attention to the matter of reading and explaining the Scripture. It isn't giving your attention to the curriculum. It's not giving your attention to the Bible study or, or any of something that you might get from uh, a regular Baptist press and making sure you're presenting it like they want you to present it. The main issue is what? That you understand what the Scripture says and you'll be able to make that clear. And Paul is always about this very important job. It's a primary job. It's the essence of the pastorate. And we also saw... Uh, in the public reading of Scripture. Not only did Christian churches adopt the custom of reading the Old Testament from the synagogues, and that's what they had done, but they added to it the readings from the apostles' letters in the Gospels. And we saw a number of illustrations of that from the New Testament epistles, and we won't go back over them, but that just means that the first century church put the apostles' writings on the same level as the Old Testament. And we didn't look at this passage last time, but we should have, and I want to make sure we look at it this time. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I think you'll get the essence of what's going on here. Verse 15, so Peter says to the church, he says, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, you could put quotations around that. Why would I say that? Well, look at the next part. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. So what's he telling the church? Remember this statement by Paul. They would remember it because it had been read in the church. And it's something that Peter is repeating. And so it's referring to Romans 2, verse 4, no doubt. And, and then verse 16 says, also in all his letters. Now, that's a pretty important statement. That just appears that all of Paul's letters were being circulated around fairly widely in the first century, and people were fairly familiar with what Paul had written. Now, listen to what he says. Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. Now, mark this as they do also, what's the rest of it? The rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now what's happening? He says, remember what Paul said, and he says a lot of hard things that are hard to comprehend, and we have to think through them, but people denigrate them and distort them, and, and they're untaught, and they're unstable people, but they do that with all the rest of the scriptures too. So what's he saying? What the apostle Paul wrote is equal to everything else that came before and it's just part of that reading that's going on. Obviously, Peter's referring to it, and he's referring to some of the responses of people who are non-believers or who are skeptics or contentious, and they're making a problem with Paul, what Paul had to say. So Peter's equating Paul's writings with Old Testament and the rest of Scriptures, which just shows us again that the early church had two public readings, one from a portion of the Old Testament and then the apostolic writings. And that was really, really important in the first century, because what were they trying to do? They were trying to help the people who were coming out of Judaism to understand there was a continuity between the Old and New Testament, and so they read from them both. We don't do that as much now. We're a New Testament church, and we read and teach from the New Testament and the New Covenant. But in the early church, that was an important step to take, and so they made sure that they equated both of those things. And this is the very thing that Paul is insisting and commanding that Timothy and everyone who oversees the preaching and teaching ministry of the church be, he says, continually given to. So the overall effect of the regular teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testaments at worship was twofold. This is where we ended last time. Number one, it emphasized the continuity, which we said, between the Old and New Testament. Very important early on in the church. And number two, and probably perhaps more importantly, it meant that the preaching that followed the reading 
was secondary to and derived from the reading of the scriptures. Do you see that? So the scriptures dictated what got said, not what the pastor wanted to say. The reading was read and then exposition was done. And, and even though this is so clear, and even though it's so well documented, 3,000 years of, of handing this down from, from uh, assembly to assembly, from, church, from synagogue to synagogue, from church to church, this is not what we have. It's handed down from ancient times, and yet uh, the uncomfortable percentage of homiletic instruction from most seminaries around the country center on entertainment and keep, keeping people's attention with interesting gimmicks, uh, which amounts to peddling and adulterating the Word of God. In fact, this is, this is what I hear often some, some of our young preachers who are Word-centered and are doing it like the reading, and they get done preaching a sermon in front of uh, the experts who will say, hey, you didn't, have enough, uh, you didn't have enough illustrations, you didn't have enough gimmicks, you didn't make enough eye contact, you didn't say enough interesting things, you spent way too much time reading the Word, and you're going to lose everybody. That's problematic, I think you can see, even from our, just our introductory look at what the reading means and how it impacted the church and how it was done. Now look at verse 13 again. He says, until I come, give attention to the, the reading of Scripture. We see in, in, in ASB and some others, the public reading. But we understand from the Greek, it's just the reading. It's referring to something, something well-known. And then the next one, and it's the same way, to the exhortation. And, and the exhortation... Uh, Pericolasis, it's a Greek noun, it's, it's from the word pericoleo, which is calling near, para is always beside, calling near, and, and it's in a noun form, it's an entreaty, it's an admonition or a correction or a comfort or a relief, and, and we know that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, and what's interesting in its connection as he's doing all those things that we understand uh, this admonition is supposed to do, the Holy Spirit is doing them too, and so as we said, then if the, the reading is what the Word says, so that's just reading it out loud orally, and then what it means by what it says, which is what we saw last time that Paul did, and Jesus did, and before them, Nehemiah, and Ezra, and the Levites, and they all made it clear, so they broke it down uh, to, to give the sense, that's my favorite passage, they gave the sense of the passage, so that's what does it say, what does it mean by what it says, then the exhortation, because it has the definite article, then this will be the application of the passage. So read it, explain it, apply it. So the question is, what is the passage there for, if you will? And this can be the hardest part of the whole thing. You may understand how to read it. You may understand what it means by what it says, what kind of figure of speech it is, or if it's just narrative, or whatever it is, a command, uh, or, or it could be a promise. You may understand that, but the hardest part can be the application. And it can be warning people. It can include uh, encouraging uh, it can, uh, it's the doing, if you will, of the passage. Now, I'd like you, if you would, just to get this down, because this is very, very common. Uh, the exhortation is a, a normal part of teaching. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, will you? Hebrews chapter 12. We did this last time as we, we wanted a, a clear passage that kind of illustrated what was going on. And as I said before, last week, those passages and these this week are very dear to me. They are really the model by which I've modeled 32 years of ministry. These are the things that I understand about what's supposed to go on from the pulpit. And I think in Hebrews 12, 5, we're going to see the whole package, and we'll just kind of break it down. Uh, we won't dig deeply into it, but I think you'll see the breaks here as you 
work your way through what does it say, what does it mean by what it says, and how does this apply. You're going to see this as, as the writer of Hebrews talks to the church. In verse 5, he says this, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now, that means they probably heard it before, okay? And so he says, my son, so he's reading the passage, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when, he, when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, stop right there. Now, you may recognize that as the writer of Hebrew is counting on his readers recognizing it, it's from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. We've looked at it as we looked at child rearing. We understand it is part and parcel of what a parent has to do. And then he makes this application again for his modern readers. So uh, this is really great. He calls to mind what it says and then what it means by what it says. And then at the end, he's gonna see, you're going to see how it applies. So here's where he's gonna, what it means by what it says. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So there's some disciplining going on. They're unclear about what's going on. He pulls this passage out. It is dealing with discipline. And then he says, uh, if you are without discipline, verse 8, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you didn't have discipline on your life, you wouldn't belong to the Lord. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seems best to them. So now we have, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? It's talking about discipline and he makes the application to earthly fathers so we all understand how that goes. Now look at the last part of verse 10. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. So you're going through, if you are going through discipline, that means you belong to him and it means that he's disciplining you for your good. Now look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, now what's he going to do? He's going to, what does it mean by what it says? What am I going to walk out with when I get done listening to this, in essence, a sermon? Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So what's he saying? There's some problems life. How you're conducting yourself is bringing on the discipline. So instead of making it worse by continuing down that path where the Lord actually has to put the joint, put it out of joint, and you're not just lame, but you can't even walk. He said, instead, change the course of your path and what? Get out from under the Lord's discipline and be healed. You see, what does it say? Just reads the passage. What does it mean by what it says? It's talking about discipline. How does that apply to me? If you're in discipline, what do you need to do? You see, that's precisely how it's supposed to go. And as we said, the overseer's job, it's to be evaluated then as successful from God's perspective, then it has to be thoroughly biblical ministry, which will include the application to the hearts of those under your care, binding, here it is, their consciences to the, respo to the response. You're informing their conscience. And we've talked about this before. The conscience is that voice the Lord's get everyone it's the conversation you have when something is in question that lets you know what you should do. The Lord's given everybody a conscience. Now, some get seared and some get calloused and they don't work like they should because they're not informed correctly. But here, when you do the exhortation, you are informing the conscience correctly. You see? And so the questions you have to ask then when you get to this, because this is the hardest part, why did God include this passage in his word? That's the question you have to ask. 
You're always exhorting with a view to a decision or a verdict once you come to the conclusion of why it's there. And you don't want anybody walking out saying, I didn't understand the passage. Because if you, the, the only reason they can say that is if you don't have any idea what the passage is saying or why it was included and what you're supposed to know about it, then no one else will either. And so you can't teach just to get the first two. The third one has to be there. You have to know why it was included. What's the application? It's not enough just to be understood. Obviously, you don't want people walking out thinking, I didn't understand that. You want people walking out and, and saying, I'm going to make sure my life conforms to what we studied, whatever that may be. And each passage is enough unto itself. See, whatever was important enough for the biblical writer to be carried along by the Holy Spirit to write is important enough for us to study. Would you agree? I, I think if we understand the Word of God that way, we have to understand that. It, 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 may be a, it may be a promise that walks out and encourages you in a time of difficulty. It may a re, be a reproof because you're in a place that you shouldn't be. It may be some instructions so you know what to do next time you come in. See, we're going to see that passage right now. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, one we've looked at often, but it reminds us that all Scripture is inspired by God, all of it, and all of it then is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It has what we need to be filled, fully equipped. The word equipped is, is, is a ship. It has to do with the ship. We've looked at it before. Getting ready to go on a trip. It's fully ready to go with everything it needs to make the journey safely. Fully equipped with everything you need. So whatever it is that you're teaching then, you want to exhort them to, I will do that or I won't do that. And they'll know what they said when they heard it. See, whether or not they do it, you want to make sure that there was an opportunity to understand it. And whatever the scripture is, in particular what we're talking about, to be able to say, okay, I understand that's false teaching. See, because every teaching is, is, is in, in today's day is on equal footing because everybody is firmly uh, entrenched in what it, and, and convinced that what they're doing is correct. But we have really an objective understanding and an outline that shows us what we're supposed to do. So when you walk out, then that gives you the equipment to talk to someone perhaps who's going to a church with a false teacher. And you can say, listen, is this going on? Is this going on? Listen, here's the passage of scripture that you should, you should understand. And then you know, they're going to know that's exhortation. And then let's look at the last one. And I think this it just takes in a very, very broad application, which you'll see. But look at verse 13 again, the very last one. Until I come, he says, give yourself to the reading, the exhortation, and then the last one, the teaching, the daskalia. It is the official job of instructing those who are in your charge, using the Word of God as a source for all of life. It's just a general term for this is what you're to give yourself constantly to. It's the official job. And there are some really great illustrations on this facet of a thoroughly biblical ministry, which is pleasing to God and success from His perspective. Uh, you're going to find this in, in, chap in Mark chapter 1, verse 22. Um, Jesus is spending the early part of his ministry doing the, this very thing, and we see this in Mark 22. They were amazed at his teaching, it says, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, this is coming from uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching them how to live. He's teaching them what's important. He's teaching them about personal relationships and prayer and giving and fasting and money and judging rightly, and all of the things continue, contained in the Sermon on the Mount. He's doing this and giving them a biblical or godly worldview. This is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the world. 
And his final instruction, and we can't ignore that from Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he tells his followers, which passed on down to us, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what? What's the next thing? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So whatever it was Jesus commanded, then our job then becomes teaching those things. That is, giving ourselves to, if we back into our passage, to the teaching. And, and it's always a matter of teaching. It always comes down to that. And the example is, is to be seen in the overseer, in giving the sense and explaining it, as we saw from Nehemiah, breaking it down, giving the translation, if you will. And, and everyone's responsibility, though, because we see that from Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And, and this is not, I think you can understand this, primarily teaching from your life experience or, or your vocation or your life lessons. In fact, I tell young pastors often, and those who teach, don't use yourself as an illustration on a regular basis. This is not about you. Because the Lord has brought you through different ways that He's going to bring someone else. You Let the Word speak for itself. This is not teaching yourself. It can include, certainly, where you learn something vital from the Word of God. But it's not just that. The major source, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. What's that mean? They're in one accord. You're going to teach in accordance with what the word says. What you're teaching must align and find its source in the word. And then mark this, we have the previous command as well, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You see? So part of your teaching is so that those you're responsible to teach will be able to identify and correct the things that are wrong. You have to know the word well enough to be able to do that. And so again, it just centers on what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to me? Not what do you think the word says? What does it mean to you? Not only do we not say that, we don't start Bible studies that way either. Why? Because it doesn't matter what it means to me. What if I didn't exist? It still means what it means. And that's, the, that's what we have to get to. If you didn't exist, it would still mean what it means. And it meant, whatever it meant to the first reader, it still means now. And that's the object then of the teacher that get down to whatever that is. And so teaching is identifying those things and making sure the faithful word and what you're teaching are in accord. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 gives us a glimpse of that scope of teaching. He says this as he talks to the, as talks to the church, seeing that his divine power, that's God's divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Well, I wonder where that's going to be found, right? It's not some magical thing. He's just going to give it to you in a vision. No, right? That's the scope though. Everything pertaining to life and godliness, it's all in there for you, everything. And what's the source? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And let me ask you a question, beloved, and you know this answer. How do we come to the true knowledge of God? Through the written word of God. It was given to us to reveal God to us, was it not? And Jesus himself is the very image of God. And so we understand all of that and we back up into all of life and godliness is going to be found through the revealed word of God. Verse 4, for by these he's granted us precious and magnificent promises. And what's the goal of the teaching? So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so there's this whole escape into life found in everything pertaining to life and godliness, which is found in the true knowledge of God, which is found in the revealed word of God, you see? 
And so this is a solid foundation on which to build ministry. Part of your teaching is uh, to those that you're responsible to teach will be to be able to rejoice in the promises of God and be strengthened. And that was, that's just a cool part of this context. Here it's that you've got these precious and magnificent promises. And sometimes you're going to walk out understanding that. It's just going to be such a boost to your own spirit. It was a tough week, and you just walk out with this promise that God will never leave you and forsake you. As you sang the song, not your will, but not my will, but your be done. You just walk out knowing that it's working his way out in you. And if it's a difficult time, it's, it's for his glory and your good now and in eternity. No matter what it is, if you're his, it's for his glory and your good now and in eternity. So this whole process is found, and that's the essence of each of these illustrations, just systematically teaching the Word of God. So you can see, this is an objective definition of what it means to have a biblical pulpit ministry. And, and not just an expository sermon, that's not, not just the reading, not just the exhortation, the meaning, but every dimension of the ministry. Proverbs 13, 14, listen to this. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. That's just a general observation that those who base, and the wisdom is found where? In the knowledge of God, right? We see that earlier in Proverbs. So the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside the snares. It's always coming up. It's a fountain of life. It turns you aside from the snares of death. It embodies the idea of systematically teaching individual people, and it has a very wide application and blessing. Certainly one-on-one, that individual at work or, or your neighbor or whoever it is that keeps coming to you and, and you have those discussions, it certainly embodies that. It, it could certainly include a counseling uh, type of situation, uh, certainly in small groups for sure. Uh, you're going to start with your children. If the Lord has granted you that blessing, then you're going to start teaching them all the time, right? And we see in Scripture so thoroughly uh, when they lie down, when they rise up on the doorpost and on the, on, the, on the gate and all of that, you're always teaching, always teaching. There's always something as your children grow, something that you can take and translate into a biblical worldview, a hot stove, a cloud on a, cloud on a sunny day, uh, a flower in the, in the garden. You can always point them back a web in the evening, right? Everything can point to the Lord. Always teaching. A fountain of life. Always bubbling up. That's what this is talking about. It's going to move outward, of course, as you, as you, as you move out from those the Lord's given to your charge. And it just sums up how you spend your life. And those who serve the church as elders, as overseers, as shepherds, they're supposed to be an example of reading and explaining and applying the Word of God. This is what they are to give their life to. And I think we can easily pull that from our passage and do that then at every level of church life because it just trickles right on down. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, I love this. This is just so clear and it has such a great application to those that are in your charge, under you, and those that are around you, your peers. It says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust, that's the verb that comes from the service industry, peritithemy, to place a plate of food alongside food. So it's really a, a cool application here. Something good in front of someone. That's the idea. And so, so all the teaching that Paul's done in all the life for as long as Timothy can remember, it's been a fountain of teaching from Paul to Timothy. And he's calling on that. You've heard this from me and you've heard it in the presence of many witnesses. It wasn't just to you. This is what I do to everybody. But you've heard this. You've been exposed to it. He's been with Timothy for a long time. Then he says this, he says, serve these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so mark this, he uses the, the term paratithemi in parallel to teaching. 
The good things you know from the Word of God, constantly serve those up to people. All the time, all the time, a fountain of life overflowing. See? Place these things before the church. These things, these teachings constantly. And here, in, in this context, it's so that you can duplicate yourself. So if you're in a position of teaching, what you want to do is duplicate yourself in that teaching. You want to be building into someone else, making sure they can then take on those characteristics and understand those teachings and be able to give them to other people. That's discipleship. So your life is all about that. Start with your family. You move out to wherever the Lord has put you, whether it's big or small. Be faithful, okay? Be faithful in those areas. In every level of the church, in every dimension of the church life, at every point of the church's contact, we're, we're ever and always ministering the Word of God. This, that's it. To disseminate sound doctrine to people at all times through all means. And the pastor and those who lead can really get sidetracked off of that into a lot of other things. It's easy to do that because there's a lot of good things that can be done in ministry. There's a lot of good things that have to be done in your family. These are all very important, but your primary ministry in the church can't be overshadowed by those things. I shared with first service, I remember going to, going to a church as a pastoral candidate. I remember them saying to me, um, we, we will expect you to uh, be in the homes of every individual who attends this church once a year. Well, it's a church of about 400 people. So um, I'm like, there isn't a chance in the world that's going to happen. And it's not because I don't love them. And I get what you want me to do. I get that you want to connect uh, me to them and them to me. I get that you, get, you want them to get to know me and I get to know them and there'll be, and there'll be fellowship. Listen, but my connection with you, my main one, is here. That's my main one. I'm, give, I'm supposed to give this out in, in a very specific way, and that's my connection. Now, there are other really fun things that connect. I mean, we're going to be going on a men's camp out, and, we're, and we do, uh, you know, the dinner, and we do all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of one-on-one -on -one stuff that goes on, and I'm in a number of your homes from time to time, and I see you in the hospital, and all kinds of stuff that the Lord allows me to do. If I can beat one of you there, because a lot of you just go there before I even get there and visit someone, which is such a blessing to me. But here's the thing. I mean, the, the main thing is this, because you can get sidetracked in a lot of other things in ministry. But this passage calls us back. And this term, as you've noticed, uh, by our returning to this term teaching so often as we teach our way through these letters, it appears more than 15 times just in the pastoral epistles. Now, that's a lot of times for a very couple of small letters. And that should tell you the importance, and more than 90 times in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it says, an overseer then, as we looked at chapter 3, remember, that was the qualifications for those who were going to lead the church. The Lord has the right to say what they are, and that, that's non-negotiables. But as he starts it, he says, an overseer then must be above reproach. And then everything that comes after that defines what above reproach means. And above reproach is not able to be called out on any of these things. He says, above reproach, there, here it is, the husband of one wife or a woman man, temperate, that's the word for without alcohol, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and then this one, able to teach. That's just obvious, right? Because he has to be able to do it because he's going to need to do it all the time because that's the main job he has. And, and you know, Scripture read, Scripture explained, Scripture applied, and then taken down to the grassroots level and all the teaching process at every level turned into doctrine that people can live by. And we looked at Just a Martyr last week, and if you missed that, you can catch it later. But I want you to come forward in time to the 1600s and the Puritan preacher, John Flavel. And if you follow our, our daily devotionals, you'll know that I post on him uh, a number of times. 
And um, he said this, quote, It is not so with us as with other laborers. And, and he's speaking of, of ministers. It's not so with us ministers as with other laborers. They find their work as they leave it, end quote. In other words, if you're laying tile and you quit at five, you come back and you pick up in the, ne- the next day. You know, if, if you're writing a report and you, you, you finish, you, wherever you leave it, it's going to be sitting there waiting for you. If you're um, building a, a cabinet, if, if, you, uh, if you're designing a website, yeah, wherever you stop, you pick up the next day, that's where it's going to be and you just keep on going there. But um, he says, quote, this is... Uh, that's the way it is with other laborers. They find their laborers, they leave it. Not so with us. And he goes on to say, quote, sin and Satan unravel almost all we do. The impressions we make on people's souls in one sermon vanish before the next, end quote. I think we can understand that. We can all see that, can we? I, I can see that in my own personal life. I, I re, I'm in, the, in my quiet time every week and every day of the week. And then you get out there in the world and it's like you're beating your head against the very things the Lord told you that you make sure you do or not do. This is the very, the very things you're going to struggle with, right? Or you forget. And that's the thing. So I think we can all see uh, he, he hits on this crumbling nature of spiritual instruction when it's combined with, mark it, the world and the flesh and spiritual warfare. You know, as you grow as a child, you know, as your children get to be adults, they have to figure out how they're going to work out their salvation with fear and trembling in the middle of whatever it is the Lord's called them to do. They have the same responsibility that you do to figure out how to live a Christian life in front of those who are their peers and how to work in an environment and not compromise your testimony. This is exactly what this is talking about. You're going to feed them and they're going to go out and they're going to walk this way and it's always hard and we're fighting against this all the time. So there has to be this certain amount of repetitiveness, repetitiveness rather, in the ministry. And I do that for my benefit as much as for yours. And it's not just the warfare that's always the case, but also, you know, I forget. And so do you. And if you're a professional educator, you know, what do they care about? 30% on from, through the summer, right? From what you taught them. Of the 100% of the things that you taught them, they hang on to about 30%. I think that's the average. So a lot of things are forgotten. And so repetitiveness, repetitiveness is, is important. And so, you know, God knows this. And so we see this all the time from the writers. I know you know this, but I say it again to stir up your remembrance. Remember reading that? That's all over the place. In other words, maybe you heard this and did it for a while. Or maybe you've been faithful with it since you heard it, or maybe you heard it and agreed with it, but you never started doing it. Anyway, here it is again. So do it again, or get started, or do it more, whatever the case may be. You know, if you did it for a little while and stopped, get started. If you heard it and didn't ever do it, start. If you've been doing it this whole time, keep on doing it. And so scripture does that over and over and over and over. So we see the importance of this teaching. We see the importance of exhortation. We see the importance of the reading. So scripture gives us a good example of the relentlessness. That's a great word for it. A relentless pursuit of this most important foundation of all ministry. So Paul commends this pastor and his son in the faith and everybody who rises to this office. So verse 13, until I come, he says, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. This is, this is the defining point. And John Stott, who, who was really a master of biblical exposition, in the English-speaking world, has said this in his book, Guard the Truth, quote, it was taken for granted from the beginning that Christian preaching would be expository preaching. That is, that all Christian instruction and exhortation would be drawn out of the passage which had been read. 
Biblical exposition was the apostolic norm. Therefore, any preaching that does not guide the listener through the scriptures is an aberration from the apostolic practice, end quote. That is exactly correct. The problem is the aberration has now become the norm instead of the exception. And there's been a phrase coined for it by R. Kent Hughes. It's called disexposition. I was talking about this with a brother in Christ this week. This occurs, he explained, when, when a text is announced and read and then properly abandoned as the preacher fails to allow the Bible to mandate the content and structure of the message, which is precisely what we've seen passed down for 3,000 years. That the, the, the ministry of preaching is subservient to whatever you read. You're making sure that's clear. And so, he says, it, you fail to allow the Bible to mandate the context and structure the message. Quote, this practice, he observes, lacks rigorous interaction with the biblical text. And again, I say, many seminaries encourage you to have less interaction with the biblical text and encourage you to be interesting. People also practice this exposition, he says, when they take a passage from its context and then speculate on what else could it mean. And so I'm telling you this so you can see this. I, I think if you've listened to anything online, if you followed anybody, you understand that this is pretty common. He reasoned why this is the norm now in many churches, and he diagnosed the issue as essentially, quote, one of unbelief in the power of Scripture, end quote. He goes on to say, I have to say, I think that's probably where the greatest problem lies today about people who think they believe in the sufficiency of God's word, but they really don't believe what they believe, end quote. He said, quote, some preachers capitulate to the postmodern aversion to reason discourse in favor of narrative-based sermons punctuated with therapeutically laced stories, or they may over-evaluate the need to make the text relevant and to contemporary listeners, end quote. See, that happens all the time, doesn't it? I listened to a sermon last week in a well-known church, not in this state, but in one that I've had uh, some interaction with. That is precisely what happened. Therapeutically laced stories. Psychobabble. You're not having victory because you don't believe in yourself. That's basically what got said from the pulpit. So, and here's the thing. When they keep telling people, hey, make this relevant, make this contemporary to your listeners, whatever, they forget that God's the author of Scripture and that he had a future audience in mind when he caused the Scriptures to be written. Right? You don't think the Lord knew that the church was going to continue when he said the gates of hell won't prevail against it and I'm going to come and catch it away? So I'm going to give you my word. Do you think it's still relevant today? Are we still in church? Are we still in the church age? And it's just as relevant today as it was in the first century. So whatever the reason, is certainly not new. Paul's calling the Ephesian church back to it, to a profoundly biblical ministry of preaching, expositional, exegetical. And the reason why? It was the very opposite of what false teachers and their, what did he say about it? Godless myths and wives' tales and endless genealogies. That's what was going on in the pulpit. It's always something besides what the Word of God says. And the truth is, without the centrality of the Word, and its exposition, there is no proper worship. It's impossible. 
And that's why principle number three in success from God's perspective is so clear. A faithful minister is to have a thoroughly biblical ministry. And it's not some sideline affair, and it's not self-defined. It's the very core of what goes on in the church. Now, let's take a look at verse 14 and get a start, because we're almost out of time. So I want to look at it, and there are a number of things we're going to need to understand in order to make a proper application of verse 14. But I want to see the obvious ones first. That's what we have time for. So look there, if you would, in verse 14. And I think you can see the essence of the passage. It's, it's, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterances, uh, prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Stop right there. And, and really, as you can see, the essence of the passage is this. Principle number four, and success from God's perspective for the faithful minister will be a ministry done according to spiritual gifting. Now, that's not a surprise to us, is it? it it's not surprising that Paul says to unsure of himself, Timothy. It's not surprising Paul says this to, I'd rather be somewhere else than here, Timothy. Any other minister who's struggling with identity or purpose, motivation or criticism or self-consciousness or whatever it is, or measuring up to someone who came before or, or whatever it is, the pressure of expectations from the congregation to do it in some certain way, to make sure that I feel like I've been taught or whatever the comments may be. There's always that expectation. There's always pressure. When it gets right down to it, what kind of person are you and who are you? Do do you have what it takes to do this? And that's what I told you a couple weeks ago. So you come to a new church, you're looking out there, all these innocuous faces, and you're like, where's the problems? Because they're always there. You know, where's the criticism? Because it's going to come. And, and, you know, will I connect with these people? Will my way of approaching the scriptures help them learn? You know, what direction will the ministry take? How will it go? These are all the questions that you have. And do I have what it takes to do it? And so Paul's affirmation that he does have what it takes really confirms that inward struggle in Timothy's life. Timothy's like, do I have what it takes to do this? I mean, Paul planted this church. I'm not Paul. No, you're not. He says, just function inside your spiritual gifts. And he reminds him to remember a moment in the past somewhere with Paul and his travels when Timothy desired the office of elder. And Paul confirmed that his, he desired a good thing. And we saw from 1 Timothy 3, 1, he says it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And so it, Timothy got to the point where it was. The Lord is put in my own heart that I need to be in ministry, that everything else now is overshadowed by that, and I desire to come up under the qualifications. And and Paul, no doubt, confirmed both desires and the overwhelming call of the Holy Spirit, which he again alludes to in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you, mark this, through the laying on of my hands. And we're going to talk about that because it's in both verses, but the idea there is, in verse 7, he says, for God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love of discipline. What's the point? He says, you've been equipped by the Holy Spirit to do the work. And so you don't have to be timid. You can have power, love, and a sound mind. And, and they prayed over him, and they recounted the Lord's commands for those who lead that we saw in 1 Timothy 3, and, and the blessings that are part of that calling, which you see in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and the gifting that he would see manifested in his life. And with all that we've read, certainly the gift of teaching would have to empower that ministry of teaching, right? And we saw, right, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, uh, this I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, 
keeping faith and a good conscience with some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. He's going to obviously have to have the gift of teaching. He's going to have to have some discernment to understand what's going on around him. And we see that in 2 Timothy 2.24, he says this. He says, um, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. There it is. You have to be able to teach or you can't serve in that position. Patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What's the issue? There's going to be some discernment. You're going to see people who oppose you. They're not going to be nice about it. And you have to be patient, and they're going to be wrong. And, and then gentleness, correcting those. You have to have the, uh, the understanding of the Word of God and the authority to say, you're wrong, and this is where it needs to be fixed. And then you're going to pray for them because you understand that they're going to have to be delivered by the Lord, not by you. And, and so discernment certainly has some understanding there. And then I want you to, if you would, just right here at the end because we're almost done. 2 Timothy 3, turn there if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and we'll go through verse 4, verse 5, four, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. And, and we're going to get to this, so I'm not going to be extensive in breaking this down. But I want you to see this because this will help us understand that um, Paul's not talking about something mysterious when he talks about a spiritual gift given its salvation, all right? Some, some esoteric thing that's going to happen to you. You're going to pray and somehow something's going to come on you. And we, we know this, but I just want to affirm. He says this, verse 14, you, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, so there's some understanding coming from the Word of God, right? Knowing from whom you have learned them. And so Tim, uh, Timothy's been, he's had Paul discipling him, explaining the Word to him, right? And he's able to discern where this is coming from. He, he, you know, sometimes I get letters from people and, and uh, I don't read them because I know that uh, they're wrong and they're just going to disagree with me. And so I just put them away. There's no point in going through it. I'm not going to change their mind. And, and so he calls Timothy to that fact too. He says, listen, you've learned some things and you know from whom you've learned them. So they're valuable and you're going to hold on to them. And then verse 15, that from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So you've acquainted yourself with the word of God. And, and here the sacred writings would be the Old Testament. And so Timothy knows them well, he's read them well, now he has wisdom to apply them, uh, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You have what you need, he says. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So there's this accountability coming up. So what do you need to do? Preach the word, verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke. Reprove, exhort with great patience and instruction because a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Opposite of what Paul's telling Timothy to do, opposite of the power that comes from the Holy Spirit that's empowered by what the Word of God says and the wisdom that comes from that. They just want to hear what they want to hear and turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. It's not something mysterious. Really, really straightforward. He's been given the gifting of, of, of an overseer. And so when we see, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. And that gift is the word charisma. What is that? It's a grace gift. First, first Peter chapter 4, verse 10 
It says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good servants of the manifold grace of God. You've been given a spiritual gift, a combination of things the Lord's equipped you to use in the church. You're a good steward when you do what? Serve one another with it. It's the same with Timothy. He's been given a gifting to serve as an overseer, and he serves other people with it. You've been given gifts by the Holy Spirit to serve other people. And you're a good steward when you do that. Just like I am, just like uh, Timothy was. So if you've been through the Be the Church class, you've looked at that passage, you understand uh, what it means, but we'll look at it next time. Not everyone's been through, but we've studied it many times. Every believer has, is given a gift. What's a great gift? It's just this. It simply means this. A channel by which the Spirit of God ministers through you to other people. It is always about other people. It's about the Lord you seeing the Lord's work in the life of the church because people who are spiritual gift with spiritual gifts minister to one another. You see, it's not about exalting you. It's not about making people think you're spiritual or holy. This is all about making God look great. And we're going to look at all that next time. But Timothy had heard with his own ears that God would enable and bless his preaching. And there's wisdom here for everyone who's been called. If God's called you to ministry, he's gifted you. And Timothy's gift a gift of the direct propagation of the word. And so Paul says, don't neglect that. Because all ministry that Jesus thinks is great is a ministry that's empowered uh, not by a great personality or a wonderful oration or great intelligence. It's ministry empowered by the gifts of the Spirit, fully being who God made you new to be. You're not someone else. You're you. And the Lord's given you special gifts to minister to the church. And there's needs everywhere in the church for those very gifts God's given to you. So he saved you. He gave you those. And by fully exercising the gifts he gave, that's success from God's perspective. Whether it's in the pulpit ministry or any other ministry that you do. And that's all the time we have. So we're going to dismiss in a word of prayer. As you walk out chewing on that, it'll be a blessing to you. Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to be in your word today. We're very grateful for uh, it's, uh, it's profound uh, clarity for us in what has to be done in the church. You have the right to order it. We're grateful that you do. What a mess uh, it would be without your order. What a mess it is in many places, even with it. And so, Lord, I pray that um, as we go out, that'll help us understand how to evaluate what's going on around us, how to be wise in what we listen to, how to do our own ministry, whatever teaching ministry that is, whether it's around our own children, on out, one-on-one uh, -on -one with uh, those you work with, um, neighbors, uh, co-workers, uh, people who come to you, Father, whatever it is, I pray that you'll remind us of these things, remind us of the importance of understanding what the passage says, what it means by what it says, and then this very important and most difficult question, how does that apply by understanding its actual application to the first century readers? And so, Lord, I pray that you'll help us do that in a way that's pleasing to you. You're the one we want to please. It's your word that we are propagating. I pray that we'll do it in such a way that's, that's good in your sight and success. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.